the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? Well, Tyson, it's Tuesday, which is the day that we record, and it's also the day that our episodes release. And today on the way in, I was listening to ourselves talk to that guy, Daniel, from uh, Scaling Up, from Vern Harnish's outfit. And I have to say, number one, my my old school plug-in headphones from my AirPod, the plug-in ones sound great. And number two, it's a great episode, and I am enjoying listening to it once again. I whenever I actually didn't know what to expect whenever we had him on because he came on because we had initially asked to have Vern Harnish on and Becca said, well, we got, we've got a good alternative. And I didn't know anything really about Daniel. I think you did. And he was amazing. He's one of the, at least one of the top 10, maybe one of the top five guests we've ever had. It was, it was really good. Yeah. And then I'm thinking, boy, I need to reread scaling up. And then I walk out into the hall and there's the book sitting there waiting for me. So I think I'm going to, Check it out again. Do you, but do you want to go ahead and get started? Yeah. So we have a guest today. Uh, and uh, sorry if I'm saying this, but he's a little nervous, or at least he was yesterday. He's a little bit better today. So that's, that's good. It's Avnish Mangal. He's a personal injury attorney out of Orlando, Florida. Uh, he specializes in personal injury and PIP litigation. It's a couple of cool things about him. Um, that's one cool thing. But the other thing is, and I want to get into this a little bit, he's the founder of San, San Francisco-based Hexna Corp. I'm sure I said that wrong, but Avnish, welcome to the show, man. Oh, wow. Uh, thank you. Yeah, that uh, I'm happy to get into that, but that's more or less a story of uh, important lessons I learned rather than a success story. So I don't know how much interest that'll be to us, but uh, I'm happy to talk about it. And uh, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you on the show, Avnish. And one of the things we wanted to start off with is what we usually start people off with, which is sort of your journey. And I know you had an interesting journey from OSU to Cornell and beyond. Why don't you Tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I, uh, you know, I come from a family of all doctors and I suppose I just wanted to, you know, branch out and do something different. But my interests always sort of actually were in computers um, and uh, IT. So I grew up, you know, building and taking apart computers, building websites, that sort of thing. Went to college, decided that instead of majoring in IT or anything like that, uh, I'd instead learn business or did finance undergrad at OSU. And then, uh, yeah, I had kind of an interesting journey going to Cornell because I wasn't your typical 
you know, awesome GPA student. It wasn't anything like that. It was, it was more or less a strategic assessment of, uh, you know, what all I could do with, with the LSAT. And, um, so there's kind of a story there, I suppose. But after that, uh, yeah, I went to, to law school in New York. I, I practiced in New York City. Then I, you know, worked in San Francisco on Hexna and then eventually moved to Florida. And that's where I am now. All right. So, Avnish, tell us about this, this biotechnology company that you founded during your second year of law school. Yeah, that was, that was an interesting uh, project. So, you know, it, it ties into what I was talking about earlier. Because of my interests growing up, most of my, you know, core friends were really in engineering fields. It was sort of self-selecting. And, you know, while in law school, I mean, I was always sort of looking at other projects and doing random things with my free time. So I got in a phone call randomly with uh, one of my very close friends. And uh, he just told me about this technology that him and his brother had been developing. And I had enough of a science background to understand why it was important technology. But certainly, I mean, I have no, you know, technical background to actually talk about the science behind the PCR device or anything like that. But I mean, basically, my role was just you know, I was talking to them and, and suggesting that, hey, you know, with my background in business and law and stuff, instead of, you know, you all just open sourcing these plans and throwing them up online and not doing anything with it, why don't we see if, you know, we can, we can make something of it. So my role in that company was mostly administrative and, and legal, but I learned a lot. I, I got to become intimately familiar with the patenting process. We worked with Wilmer Hale on that. And, uh, you know, that's still going on. We're still replying to office actions from the PTO. So it was, yeah, it was super interesting. I mean, it's one of my favorite things to talk about are people that left big law to sort of hang their own shingle. What did you learn working for a big firm and how did that translate into that time period when you started your firm? Oh man, what did I learn? I learned uh, everything. I mean, I, I, I have to admit my experience in big law, to whatever extent I'm a professional today, it, it came from that. It was really transformative. I mean, you learn a lot of things for better and for worse. You learn the top-down hierarchical nature of, um, you know, big law. You learn that a lot of those stereotypes are actually true. You learn that, you know, you, you learn the technologies that they use. You learn about the, the mentality they have. And the mentality is particularly interesting because I think it's easy when you're in big law to get too sucked into it. And, and that's, that's one of the things I really love about your all's podcast. And um, I really enjoy about the show and sort of the perspective here is because one thing I can tell you is coming from big law, being a cog in a much bigger system and having, you know, a, a, a nice comfortable salary versus trying to hang a shingle out on your own and actually trying to generate business out of nothing. They're two completely different ball games. It's like not even close. I mean, in one you're, you know, your glorified detail checker on, on, on templates of, of contracts. And in the other one, you have to wear so many different hats all at the same time and be quite good at wearing those hats for you to even, you know, get off the ground, let alone sustain flight. So, um, I mean, yeah, it, it, it was really interesting in terms of teaching me how to be professional, but I don't think it prepared me at all for um, hanging out a shingle. Well, you did. You eventually did start your firm, so you hang out your shingle in 2018. So tell us about that. How did what what in, encouraged you to take that leap? That's a big change going from big law to a guy I know is called street law, big law to street law. So how? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why did you make that leap? So you know, 
It's funny. When I was in San Francisco, so I go from Big Law in New York City. I go to SF. I'm working on, you know, the Hexna stuff. And I, I slowly realized that I'm in a space where it's, it's clear that unless you have a core competency in this space, you're wasting your time and other people's time. Like it's, it's, it's cute and everything for you to have a title of CEO. But the fact is that when you're in a room with people of substance, everybody knows that you're, you know, you have no clothes. Everyone knows that at the end of the day, if there's a technical question that must be asked, you can have the title CEO, but you're not the point person for those questions. And when, if you respect that process enough, you know that if you respect the technology enough, you're kind of holding it back. And so what that prompted was a reassessment of whether or not I really wanted to leave law because I understood at that time that the longer I stay in this space outside of law, it's more or less kind of like letting go of a medical residency. It's like, you know, once I, if I were to try and re-enter the legal industry when I was like 35 and I had this huge gap in my employment and training and, and just everything, you know, I could potentially really uh, hurt my ability to get back into the field. And so I guess more or less in a strategic, you know, initiative, I, I decided, okay, let me explore law again. Let me see if I can maybe find someone else to help run Hexna. And let me see if I can do that. So my intent was actually to go back to New York after SF. My family happened to move to Florida when I was in college. And so I took a pit stop here. And basically, long story short, I met my wife and then realized, oh, okay, it's time to actually settle down and do something, you know, real. At that point, I put out a, uh, <laughs> I started looking for any attorney positions I could find in Florida. I got, you know, talking to some big law firms over here, you know, and, and actually got a couple offers and that was pretty cool and I was excited. But I got this one random offer from a small solo personal injury firm in Newport Ritchie. And he put out this posting where he was like, you know, I'm looking for someone with five to seven years of litigation experience. I'm looking for someone in personal injury, someone who knows how, you know, how to handle clients, all this stuff. I kind of replied to the job posting as a joke and was like, you know, yeah, sign me up. Like I can do this. Let's, let's go. You know, I may not have that experience, but I can bring XYZ to the table. And he was so, uh, I guess it piqued his interest because he was not expecting a joking reply from a candidate. He called me in for an interview. And the next thing, you know, we knew we we're like, all right, well, let's, let's do this. So he, he's, uh, just as, um, important in, in my story as, as, uh, you know, the big law firm that I worked for before, because he, he was a fantastic mentor. He taught me everything I know about personal injury, but that was in Newport Ritchie. My family's in Orlando. And so after I worked with him, uh, you know, year and a half, two years or however long that was, then, uh, then, yeah, I mean, then I had to make a choice. And um, instead of doubling down in Newport Ritchie, I decided that, you know, I'd want to move closer to home. And then I just went for it. What was the biggest surprise to you? What, or what, what didn't you know when you opened your firm, Avnish? I had a lot of theories on different advantages I might have when I opened my firm, uh, many of which didn't exactly play out uh, and some of which did play out, but in ways that were unexpected. So, I mean, okay, the, the question was like, what was unexpected in, in opening my firm? I mean, one thing was just that it, it wasn't unexpected. Everyone told me, but I, I, I suppose I just didn't appreciate how it would feel. But having to wait a year and a half to two years for revenue to start hitting 
because of the nature of the time it takes for personal injury cases to go from start to finish was just unbelievable. I mean, it was, it, it was so stressful and I mean, it still is, but it, it I look back and I, I realize why there's such a barrier to entry for people to, to get into small business it is it's unbelievable. The amount of risk you have to take just sitting there and waiting for you to not only generate clients, but then also wait for those cases to, to, to play out and to validate that, you know, you know what you're doing. It's that, that was definitely the worst part and definitely, um, you know, maybe not unexpected, but, uh, yeah, it, overwhelming. All right. So, so talk about this wedding gift, uh, that you received, to, to, to start your firm. I'm really curious about this. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I was just, uh, when we were talking before I had just mentioned, yeah, I, Serbi and I got married and, um, you know, we just, I mean, what I meant was all the wedding gift money that we had received people, instead of, you know, giving us things for our house or whatever, we had sort of requested that, you know, keep it um, with funds and stuff. And so that was really with an intent for me to start my business. So, I mean, using the wedding money combined with any of the savings I had up until that point. I mean, I, there were, there was a month where I wasn't sure I was going to be able to, you know, get groceries for us. And then, uh, but then things start hitting, you know, and, and personal injuries also that, that type of space where one case is, you know, it can be a sizable, you know, amount. So it, it, it's just, it's been a huge learning experience. Thanks to our sponsor, Smith AI. Smith AI is a superior receptionist service for law firms, trusted by many maximum lawyers, including me. At my immigration practice, the hacking law practice, Smith's friendly U.S.-based receptionists respond to potential clients in English or Spanish, screen and schedule new leads, and even take payment for our consults. The best part is that they don't just handle these conversations by phone. They also have live agents and chatbots capturing leads on our website through their chat widget. They serve as our friendly gatekeepers while my team and I work uninterrupted. We get new clients and we get work done. How awesome is that? If you're in a solo or small firm, I know you'll appreciate this. Plans start at just $70 a month for calls and $100 a month for chats. They even offer a totally free chatbot, so there's no excuse. Try Smith AI today and see for yourself why attorneys like me say Smith AI receptionists are the secret to business growth. Smith AI offers a free trial and maximum lawyer listeners get an extra $100 discount with promo code MAXLAW100, that's M-A-X-L-A-W-1-0-0. Sign up and learn more at www.smith.ai. Trust me when I say, don't let another day go by, try Smith AI. And so tell us about your current staffing situation. How do you, what's your firm structure look like? Yeah, the, the firm structure is interesting. It's really just me and Celeste, uh, just one other person. It's my paralegal. And uh, we we handle everything. Um, you know, we we sometimes we'll incorporate virtual employees if we need them. Um, but mostly our practice runs on software that I've built. Um, so uh, we have a proprietary case management system, which is where, you know, I got to sort of use some of my skills, so to speak. And that handles and, and organizes all of our personal injury and PIP cases. And that's sort of our, uh, our big thing there. But, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, obviously one thing that's uh, really great about, um, both of your perspectives and, and sort of your, you know, intent is to leverage technology to, to help firms perform better and deliver better quality to their clients. That really resonates with me. I, I thought that was awesome. So this software, cause I, that's, that's actually the, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, cause I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. Cause I know a lot of lawyers that have 
talked about building their own software and I've, I've even explored the idea of it, but ever I've looked, I've talked to companies and the, the cost estimates were just ridiculous, but you've actually built your own. So, I mean, how long did that take? I mean, it, was it before or during the practice? I mean, how did you know what to do? I mean, it's, that's, I've got all these different questions about it. Yeah, uh, sure. That process probably took about two years, two and a half years. Um, it was just me doing it. I didn't have any help. You know, how did I know what to do? I mean, that's, it's, really because my primary passion has always been in software and hardware. So, I mean, I've, I've always grown up kind of writing code and stuff. I mean, I, I used to teach um, computer science engineering courses in college and I mean, TA for them and uh, that kind of thing. And so, so, I mean, I already had some kind of background, but, but as far as, you know, I think the more interesting discussion here that, that you're highlighting is, is a, a question of why that's even necessary. I mean, you look at like the, the main software players in the space, we've got like, you know, what, like my case, you've got like rocket something, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've like tried them all. I, I practice Panther. You've got, uh, you know, whoever, and invariably it, it kind of feels like each one is designed to, you know, incorporate as many different practice types as it can, but it's not really a master of one. And the softwares that are out there that are masters of one are typically more transactional. They're not like, you know, for personal injury firms. So, you know, yeah, I mean, ultimately I wouldn't have done it unless I felt there was a need because looking back, it was a lot of work, but the advantage of building your own and going back to your point about looking at cost estimates and stuff, I don't think it would be practical to build out a first version paying someone else to do it. Now, of course, this is a discussion that we should also revisit later because one revelation I've had as I've, uh, you know, developed my practices, a lot of the hesitation I used to have in the beginning about where it's wise to spend money and where it's not has shifted dramatically just based on the firm doing better. So I have to take everything I say with a grain of salt because maybe I'm not at the level yet where I understand the value of just paying people hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop the software. But from my perspective, that didn't make sense, particularly because there's too much trial and error involved in building the software. You have to, I mean, there's so much uh, complexity to the legal logic, if, depending on how sophisticated you're going to make the software, that paying somebody else to do it and then paying for the inefficiencies that come with that, with that uh, you know, discussion gap or with that information gap, it, it, I mean, I think it'd be frustrating. The beauty of, of me being the lawyer and the developer was that a, every time there was a bug, I immediately fixed it. And B, every time there was a feature request, I immediately implemented it because I was requesting the features. So, you know, I, it was, it was uh, liberating to have the ability to do it. Um, it took a lot of time, but it's exciting because it's in use and production. You know I mean? This is what we use every day. So it's living and breathing. I mean, in, in a sense, it's like always evolving. Um, and it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, well, what I've done is not rocket science. Anybody could do it. And it, the, even, you know, the code itself, I think a lot of people get too wrapped up in trying to write code from scratch. And that's just not where, you know, the, the current uh, best practices are for programming right now the it's, it's well understood. Like agile is the way to go, get things off the ground, get it moving, get it working. And then, and then you can refine and, and revisit. So, you know, for example, I use knack, Dot com. That's the platform on which I sort of built my initial thing. And you all can check it out. It's pretty cool. It's a great way to sort of provide you with scaffolding to build out the business logic behind software. At this point now, what I've built, I'm sure I could probably give it to someone else to rebuild it 
and it's in code from scratch and it'd probably be way, way cheaper than if I, you know, were paying them from the beginning to help me generate the ideas behind it. That was a great answer. Yeah. So that, that brings up an interesting point. Obviously, most of our listeners are not going to be able to build out their own software. But when it comes to software generally, what advice or what mistakes do you see most law firms making? That's a great question. That's a, you know, that's a super interesting question too, because what mistakes do I see most law firms making? Well, to be quite, I mean, you know, Frank, my exposure has only been to the law firm I worked at in New York City stories I've heard from my, my buddies who work in similar law firms, the PI firm I worked at afterward, and then my own. And then the rest of it is really what I've read online. But what I can tell you about are just general security practices, best practices that people don't follow. You know, you have your usual low-hanging fruit talking about email security and how you really shouldn't put, you know, confidential stuff there and things like that. I think there's a lot of overuse of email um, in law firm communication. I mean, I can also reflect, I guess, on the communications that I've received from other law firms in my own practice and stuff and mistakes that I've seen them make and, and things like that is, yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of confidential information that goes out in emails. Emails are sent in plain text. Most people don't realize that. You can read everything in the contents of an email if you're, you know, inspecting the network on which it's sent. So, it, it, you know, and, and obviously there are caveats to that, but the point is that it's not nearly as secure as people think. Another mistake I see people make uh, with software generally is, um, you know, using popular public cloud storage solutions. Uh, I'm sure Dropbox and Google Drive and, and OneDrive, you know, they work uh, for synchronizing your files and, they, and these companies will all tout the security that they offer. But ultimately, how secure are you from, you know, the company's own personnel looking through your legal documents or looking through your files or having that exposed at some later point due to some kind of bug? So, you know, we host all of our own servers and I do that out of uh, really respect for the, the files. So, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know what kind of mistakes other people make with software. I, I can tell you like from broad, you know, macro level standpoint, I think a lot of people don't realize the latent uh, landmines that are, that are there in their tech systems, you know, that, that could go off at any moment. They don't have good backups. They don't have uh, good redundancies for, um, you know, systems going down, for, for internet connections going down, things like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm happy to talk about any of anything specific. So what got you so into data privacy? Because, I mean, you went from big law. I know you're big into to tech and all that. Is it, is it your tech background? I mean, what got you so much into that? Yeah, definitely. It's through years of, of watching things kind of blow up in my own face, you know, like where where... I'll have, you know, like there'll be like an email sitting somewhere with some password to an account and later like that account will get hacked or something or, or there'll be, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think, I mean, it's also more from a, uh, an understanding of what could happen. It, it's a, it comes from a deep set realization that I think the reason I, I particularly care is because most of my life is in IT. And, and I don't mean that in terms of interests. I mean, my life, like, I mean, all of my personal information, everything about my day, my, my schedule, my habits, my, me tracking my own goals, you know, in terms of like weight, in terms of exercise, in terms of anything personal, all my medical records, it's all in my computer. And to the extent any of that were to be compromised, it's, it's mind boggling what kind of damage that could have on my life or on anyone else's life. And so, you know, computers, much like law, 
I mean, you have to kind of preemptively think about things. You can only remedy so much after it's happened. What does the future hold for your law firm, say, in the next three years? Where are you going to be? I hope to, to, to grow. I mean, for sure. That's one thing I was actually hoping to talk to both of you about is learning more about how you all scaled up. I saw both of you went to uh, St. Louis University Law School. That's cool. My aunt went there for law school. And, um, but yeah, but I'm also unfamiliar with, with like your origin stories, I guess. I mean, like, how did you get to where you're at? Cause I have both of your websites up. I've been looking at everything. I mean, these are really well done. I, I don't think either of you probably wasted your time building these sites yourselves. So, and I've heard many of your discussions talking about, um, you know, best practices for marketing online and things like that. But I mean, how you have just as much of a tech focus as I do, but in a slightly different angle. So how did you, you get into it? Blue Shark, baby. That's, that's, what, that's, that's who I use. Jim, you still use Blue Shark, right? Yeah, I do. And, you know, I think, I think Avnish, it's, it's been a, a growth in progress. Like it's, it's fits and starts. It's, you know, you try this, you try that. I've made plenty of mistakes. I think that... I don't have as analytical a mind as you do, but I think that sort of just not being satisfied with the way things are, I think that's really an important feature for both Tyson and I. Um, I also think tapping into what I am particularly good at has been really helpful in finding people that support my weaknesses so that I'm not, I'm a big believer in like going all in on what you're really good at and then leaving the other stuff to people that they're really good at. So I think that you probably have some things that you could turn over to other people that would free you up to do what you're really best at. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I mean, that resonates a lot with me. I've, I've heard both of you talk about that before. And uh, I, I, I mean, it, it's definitely consistent with everything I've read too. you know, I mean, having the bus driver mentality, level five leadership type stuff, you know, making sure you get the best people on your team and equipping them with the tools they need to do the best they can totally agreed. One thing that I found interesting was coming from big law to where I am now, there's a huge gap in between, you know, you know, between those two levels. And it's, I find myself sometimes wanting to implement technologies or, or, or practices or, you know, things that were used in those big companies that, that are just not practical for my size. And, you know, it, I used to daydream about, oh man, I'm going to have so many employees and you know, this is how the, the structure is going to be set up and the, the whole tree and all this stuff. And, and just the, uh, it was very humbling to realize how difficult it was to get to the point where we could comfortably sustain an employee, one, you know, and now moving to the next level is, is very exciting. But, um, but I, I hope to be in a position, to your point, um, where I can, uh, you know, have additional people uh, to help. And I will, I will say this, I'll add this, because what you said is right on. Um, it, not everybody can get a car crash, you know, your first month of, of going out and hanging your shingle and then selling it for $3 million, and then you can hire a bunch of employees to do whatever. A lot of this is baby steps, and you, add, you gradually add piece by piece by piece. It's not something you just do overnight. And I think that that's sometimes people are like, oh, my gosh, why, why am I not growing fast enough? And that's just not how it works. I mean, it's a gradual growth process. It's not something that you just hire 50 employees. You just don't do that. It's not how it works. But um, Avnish, we do have to wrap things up because I know Jimmy's got to run. Before I do, I want to remind everyone, go to the Facebook group, get involved there. Um, lots of great information going on uh, and, and being shared. 
Also, if you don't mind taking a few seconds, giving us a five-star review and help spread the love, we would really, really appreciate it. And then if you have any interest in the guild, uh, we have members joining regularly. It's, it's a great group. Uh, go to MaximumLawyer.com. Jimmy, what's your hack of the week? For my hack of the week, it is to be conscious of your memo lines or your titles of things. So I've really been having fun since we started doing YouTube videos every day and emails every day of playing with headlines. And it's unbelievable how important headlines are because, of course, a headline's only purpose is to get the person to keep going, to do the next thing you want them to do, either open the email or play the video. I, I did a series. I had no idea what to do my videos on this week, last week when I was doing videos. So I just got out there and said how things work. So I, I did one video of how each case type works. And the last one I did was called How Things Really Work at USCIS. And people love that shit. They love... They love thinking they're getting inside information. So if you're writing an email or if you're doing a video, give them a hook. So all, don't, just, don't just throw it out there. Always you know, give them a little bit of a mini cliffhanger. And I'm laughing because you know, I look at my analytics and YouTube tells me how my video is doing as compared to the last 10 videos. So this one from yesterday with how things really work, it's one out of 10. It has 3,700 views in about 20 hours. So that just goes to to show you that having that right title really can make the big difference between people consuming your content or not. Very, very cool. Nice. I like it. All right, Avnish, we always ask our guests to give a tip or a hack of the week. Do you have one for us? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say just, just keep pushing. <laughs> it, it's, it's really, that's, that's where I'm at right now. I, I, the, the most important thing, I mean, this is more targeted toward anyone who's, who's just getting in the startup um, of a firm or is a young lawyer looking to, to hang their out, hang out their own shingle. Um, certainly you can reach out to me. Like I can talk to you about it uh, more, but you know, it don't, don't get disheartened. There's like, there's no way you're going to beat the year to two years it takes for the revenue to come, which means that uh, you just have to sit there and, and wait. It, yeah. Very cool. I, I think, you know, it's, it's such simple advice, but it's, it's true. It really is true. Just keep, keep pushing through. So this is um, an interesting one. Um, my tip is to do a branded face mask, no matter what your politics are. And here's why. So Marco in the guild, he, he had some new face masks that he got. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's cool. Nice little idea, whatever. And Amy put the other day, she like, there was a new ordinance change in Columbia. So we, she did a little Canva graphic and put, the logo on the, on the mat was a black mask and we posted it and people were like, I want that mask. I want a mask. I want a mask. And we we're like, what the hell? Everyone wants a damn mask. So the tip is get some branded masks and give them to your people. I mean, it, people really want them. It's a great branding opportunity. So what we're doing is by the time this goes, uh, goes live, uh, except for the guild people, um, they're hearing this now, we will have a landing page and we're just going to say, Hey, if you want a mask, go to the landing page, we're going to get their name and email address so we can then market to them. So, um, it's a great opportunity to, to, to market to people, especially people that are not on your list. Avnish, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's kind of crazy. You've got a crazy background, so it's great to learn it. Um, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, yeah, I'm excited to, uh, keep learning more from both of you. Awesome. Thanks guys. Thanks, Good stuff. Yeah, Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your host and to access more content, more content. 
go to MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.